Please join me in reading from Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, those of you who have fallen prey to the trap set by Disney and have signed up for a subscription to Disney Plus have maybe like my wife discovered a Broadway musical called Hamilton. Uh, it's been out for a number of years, but we just uh, recently discovered it. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it tells the story of an orphan boy by the name of Alexander Hamilton, who became one of the founding fathers of uh, our nation. And in one of the scenes, there's many songs being a Broadway show, but in one of the scenes, one of the songs, Aaron Burr sings a song called The Room Where It Happened. Uh, it's a catchy tune, if you haven't heard it, but it describes an actual historical event that took place, uh, which is known now as the dinner table bargain, in which Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, both from Virginia, uh, met with their political foe, Alexander Hamilton, to try to come to a compromise. And in that meeting, they arrived at a compromise, a plan that gave each party a victory, uh, the results of which are still in place today. Jefferson and Madison got their capital uh, in a place now known as Washington, D.C., in the South, and Hamilton would gain support of uh, Jefferson and Madison and their party, Southern support, for the federal bank that we still now use today. The problem is, the problem is that we Americans today have no idea what actually took place in that trajectory-changing dinner, no idea how they came to that compromise, no idea what each party gave up, because as the song so perfectly captures, 
No one else was in the room where it happened. Well, on the night that Jesus poured out his soul in Gethsemane before his death, thanks to the Holy Spirit, thanks to the pen of Mark, we get to be in the room or in the garden where it happened. If I were to title this sermon, I'd call this sermon, The Garden Where It Happened. Today, we're going to be looking together at this private place to see what our Savior endured to accomplish redemption for us. We often think about the gospel and redemption as exclusively the cross, but there were many events leading up to the cross that aid in our and accomplish our redemption. Gethsemane was for Jesus his emotional and spiritual and physical prelude to Calvary and what happened there that night. What Jesus endured has become for us, for Christians, the source of our strength in our own times of temptation and trial. Have you been tempted as of late? Have you been in an extended season, perhaps, of trial and difficulty? Friends, be assured that if you belong to Christ, that your standing comes from his standing strong that night in the face of unthinkable torment. Here, this last moment of freedom that Jesus has sets the stage for the securing of ours. I want to make three observations about Jesus in this scene that are vital for us in his accomplishment of our redemption. If you're taking notes, really easy. We see that he is a humble savior, excuse me, human savior. We see that he is a humble savior and we see that he is a helping savior. So let's work through these together. Number one, Jesus is a human savior. The Garden of Gethsemane was nestled at the base of the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples would often gather there for rest and for fellowship. The name Gethsemane literally means olive press. It was likely the place where olives were harvested and pressed into oil and supposedly there at the site, I've not been there, but there is a, uh, at the traditional site, uh, an olive press where you can watch a demonstration take place, how oil is made from olives. Now, it's the night of Jesus' death and Mark tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, in the original, these Two words describe Jesus as utterly overwhelmed by grief and anguish and torment. Never before have we seen Jesus in any of the gospel accounts like this. At every moment in his earthly life, his life has been characterized by intentional, uh, calculated movements. Jesus is always tempered. He's always resting, even at stressful times. But here, Jesus is stretched to the limit on the level of intense physical and emotional torture. So 
So picture this, Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John, and he instructs them to keep alert, to pay attention, because he's going to go to a private place alone, and this will be a night of testing for everyone. He goes off to this place, and what does he do? He, he collapses, pleads with his father for a way out. Can you, can you see him there? There in that place where tens of hundreds of thousands of olives were crushed for their oil. Now Jesus is being crushed to the point where, as Luke says, globules of blood are seeping from his brow. It's a medical term for that. It's called hematidrosis. It's so rare, medically speaking. There's only been a handful of cases documented in the 20th century. And doctors think that it's, it's triggered by an emotional response to acute stress. None of us have experienced this kind of stress before. Now, we're going to press deeper into this moment, but I don't want us to miss this simple reality. Jesus took on humanity. Jesus took on humanity. We've seen his strength and fortitude in his life, but here, immense suffering. Though he is God, he is now man. And I think that we tend to believe that because Jesus is fully God, somehow his suffering was easier for him to bear than it would be for the rest of us, that Jesus is sort of a, a superhuman who just kind of pushed through the suffering and came out the victor on the other side. Or conversely, we commit the opposite mistake of thinking that because Jesus' suffering was so much worse than anything we'll ever experience, that our own moments of trial are trivial when compared to his. So what happens when we genuinely do suffer? We find it difficult, don't we? Find it difficult to turn to him as the one who understands. And instead of clinging to him, we, we look to other sources like our own strength. Friends, these ideas of Jesus as some sort of superhuman or apathetic savior are simply unbiblical. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that's unbiblical. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5. He says that the, the human high priest was a, a type of Christ. The man chosen from among men as a man who is beset with weakness. And because of that, being a human, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray. Why? Because he understands understands what it's like. Every kind of suffering, friends, from a, a hangnail to, to hunger to, to being hated by someone, Jesus connects with that. His reality connects with our own. His struggles connects with our own. He has stood in our shoes. Because he sits today as our great high priest at the right hand of God, he never forgets 
As Dane Ortland so well puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly, his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. Are you in a season of trial? Are you in a season of temptation? Listen to what Orland goes on to say. Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, killed. But our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Friend, what is your pain? What is your Gethsemane, whether it's small or large? Are you under stress this week? Do you have a date coming up this week that you're dreading? A date on the calendar that you're not looking forward to? Or maybe this past week, someone you love has said things to you that hurt. Instead of imparting grace to you, they've imparted criticism. Friends, when we're afflicted on any level, Jesus shows us that we shouldn't act like it's no big deal. I want to say this to the men. Men, let's not try to pretend to be any less human than Jesus was. He's the manliest man who ever lived. Not a superman, but the true man. And he's saying, my soul is troubled to death. Brother, have you told him about it? Have you shared with him, sister, about that date coming up? About those words that hurt you? If you can say, no, I haven't. And your pastor has helped me with this so much. If you haven't, you're cheating yourself out of grace for the battle that you are about to face. He has walked our path before us. Now he wants to walk it with us. He's a human savior. Number two, he's a humble savior. Verses 35 and 36, we hear the content of Jesus' private prayer with his father. He's pleading with his father to search the, his endless wisdom to see if there is any other possible way for a a redemption to be accomplished? Is is there a a secret door that I could just slide through and accomplish redemption by escaping? Now in his book, Jesus the King, 
Tim Keller notes that history is filled with stories of Christian martyrs who met with their death, and some were very horrific, in the face of unflinching courage. Here, though, Jesus, God the Son, the same Savior who predicted his death, repeatedly, by the way, who's had his face set toward Jerusalem since before the world was created, is looking for a way out. Why is this? Why is this? Well, here we begin to see that though Jesus had a, has a human nature like a, a martyr, Jesus is no mere martyr. Jesus is not merely awaiting a firing squad or a, a burning stake. And we see this in his request in verse 36. He says, Abba, that term of familial intimacy, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. This cup. We've seen the word, or maybe you know the word cup is loaded with meaning in the Old Testament scriptures. Places like Jeremiah chapter 49 and Isaiah 51 speak of the cup as a, a symbol of God's wrath and judgment toward sin. See, friends, Jesus is not spilling his blood for his beliefs like a martyr would. No, his death is doing something. For the Son of God incarnate, death means that he would become the object of scorn and fury. It means that he would become sin. He would become the, the naked and exposed target of a just and holy God, receiving the full force of his hatred toward the sins of man. And he would drink that cup. He would drink it until it was empty. And the father's fury was appeased. Now, if we're honest, any mention of the wrath of God that make us kind of squirm just a little bit. We don't like to think of our loving father in that way. A number of years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA submitted a request to Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, the authors of the well-known hymn, In Christ Alone, and they asked them if they could change a line in that song. The original read this, reads this, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For this, they wanted to substitute the wrath of God, excuse me, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Subtle change. The story goes on that the Gettys denied their request, and the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Songs subsequently voted to remove that song from their hymnals. See, they want a God of love, not a God of wrath. And if we squirm, friends, it's because we have forgotten or we have a basic misunderstanding about what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God. See, friends, the reality is you can't have a God of love unless he is also a God of wrath. You see, his wrath, as Tim Keller so well says, is a function of his love and goodness. He goes on in that book, Christ the King, 
Jesus the King. The Bible tells us that God loves everything he has made. That's one of the reasons he's angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people and the world he loves. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours. And the cumulative extent of evil in the world is so vast that the word wrath doesn't really do justice to how God rightly feels when he looks at his world. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. And this, my friend, is the reason why Jesus came. This is the reason why he is in agony that night. Now take that reality of the wrath of God and couple it together with the the fact that, the staggering fact that until now, Jesus, God the Son, has never been separated from the pure and loving communion with his Father. His disciples have repeatedly failed to be a source of comfort, not so his father. But now, in his hour of greatest need, at a time when he needs his father most, in the words of one commentator, he finds hell rather than heaven opened up to him. And yet in verse 36, he says, yet not what I will but what you will. You know, this whole mess, this whole broken creation that you and I live in came about about way back in the beginning in another garden with another man who said, not what you will, but what I will. The cross, then, is the place where the the foulness and the, the filth of countless people from every age would be poured out on the purity and the glory of the Son so that love and mercy could be subsequently poured out on those same people forever. Yet not what I will, but what you will means that though Jesus wants to escape the abandonment and terror that awaits him, his greatest desire is to bow to the plan of the Father. So he resists the temptation to flee. And only the person who fully resists temptation and overcomes it understands the strength of it. So Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in so doing, he undid the power of that very first fall into sin back in Eden. Friends, Jesus was denied so that his perfect obedience could be applied to our account. And it's that obedience that now keeps us when we face temptation, whether it's temptation to sin or just simply to give in to weakness. Now, my friend, God will not utterly abandon us, but instead, he receives us. He strengthens us. Have have you given in to temptation this week, but belong to Christ? 
Maybe you've given in to temptation to excess food and drink. Maybe you've spoken sharply to your spouse, to your child. Maybe you've looked just a little too long at a coworker or had an inappropriate conversation, or at least it's leading in that direction. Maybe it's simply that you've exchanged prayer for just a little longer sleep. Are you discouraged by it? Are you discouraged by it? Let's look together at this humble Savior. Look, look at him. His, his perfect obedience was for us. And it was so effective that it has melted God's rightful wrath against us into rivers of love and mercy. In the words of Dane Orland, his sinlessness is our salvation. He's a humble Savior. Third and last, he's a helping Savior. Mark closes out the account by shifting his focus onto the three disciples now, Peter, James, and John. Just a little while ago, he told them to remain there and watch. And he comes back and he finds them asleep. Other accounts kind of give us a little clue as to why they fell asleep. They're just so overtaken with sorrow. They've had a night of dining. Then Judas disappears. Now Jesus is talking about my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. All the thoughts about him being given up to be crucified are probably coming back to their minds and they just do what sorrowful people do. They're worn out. They're, they're tired and they fall asleep. And perhaps you can recall a moment here lately when your trial drove you to such a, a point of depression, a, a point of despair that your physical body was affected by it. Of course, Jesus understands the temptation to withdraw. He understands what it's like to let your guard down and to become lethargic, which is why he told them to stay alert. But I want you to see this. Even though the spotlight is on Peter, James, and John, this bigger light still on Jesus. I want you to observe Jesus' care for these men. While Jesus is in the fight of his life, he wants to help them. And so he approaches them and he goes to the spokesman, Peter, and he gives him a challenge. And he gives him a charge. He challenges Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, that's, that's his old name. Peter means rock. He's not lived up to that, though, has he? He wants Peter to see the seriousness of this hour. In effect, he says, Simon, you just told me just a bit ago that even if all desert me, you never will. How do you expect to stand strong in the hour of sifting and the hour of trial if you don't stay alert? So he charges them. He says, Watch, stay alert. And you stay alert by, by what? By praying, by talking to the Father. So that when you are tempted and when trial comes and when everything starts to fall apart, you won't. 
You won't abandon me. You won't turn away. You will stand fast. Three times Jesus comes and tells this to Simon Peter. Three times the exact amount of times that Peter in just a little while would deny the Lord. Their sorrow pushes them away from the Lord rather than to. See, friends, in our, our hour of trial, our hour of temptation, prayer guards us from shifting in our loyalties to God. Mark's readers would have been both comforted and confronted by this text. In Rome, their persecution was getting worse and worse. Jesus provides the help that they need to endure. What did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. When the evil hour comes, when we're under pressure, do we pray? It's a simple question we must all face. Do we pray? Do we recognize our Lord as our source of protection and strength? Friends, sometimes the best thing we can do is go into a bathroom and cry out to God. Stop what we're doing. Jesus goes on to say the spirit is willing even when our flesh is weak. Our faithfulness in the moment of testing does not and cannot come apart from the work of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. That's why he commands them to pray. It's a bit of a basic image, but just the simple act of turning on the faucet allows the water to flow out so we can drink and wash up and be clean. Prayer brother and sister, is like turning on that faucet. It's like opening ourselves up to divine help, especially when we recognize our own physical limitations are failing us. Are your physical limitations failing you? Pray. In fact, it's watchfulness in prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we can actually overcome the severest of trials and the smaller trials like hanger. And here's the best part. It's all because Jesus was faithful all the way to the very end that makes your prayers effective. If I could put this whole sermon into one sentence, it would be that our Savior's obedience to the death sustains and protects us in our moments of temptation. Sustains and protects us in our moments of temptation. Jesus' prayers were ignored so ours could be answered. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus was betrayed into Satan's hands so you and I could be placed into God's. I'd like to end with a, a little story. Several weeks ago, uh, we took our family up to Asheville, North Carolina, and we just had some time away just to enjoy the outdoors. And my mom and dad and my, my brothers came with us, and we had a great time. And we decided one day that we would go kayaking as a family. And so before our journey down the French Broad River, the a uh, guy at the Outfitters gathered us together and he warned us about a section of the river where it 
is going to get pretty rough. He told us where it was. He said there's going to be a bridge and you're going to see some white water over there. And he told us a lot of people flip out of their kayaks right there. So please be very careful. And here's how you're going to do it. Here's how you are going to avoid flipping. So there's two pillars. Stay in the middle. Stay in between the center of those two pillars. Don't let yourself get pulled too far to the right or to the left. Well, we all nodded our heads. We all got into our kayaks. And my brother and my son, Connor, who's here, was in the very last tandem kayak. And we all got through the bridge. It was difficult, but we made it through. But here comes Connor and Jesse. And we all turned around and we all looked back and we saw their feet in the air. And we saw the kayak flipping up into the air and Connor floating downstream. They had slid too far to the left and they hit the pillar and the current was so strong that it pulled them out. Kayak got bent around the pillar and it's only two feet deep, so he survived. He walked back. But I tell you that story because I, I thought about that later on and I thought about how our journey through life is so much like going down that river. There are places where the water is calm and where it's easy and where it's enjoyable there are other times where it's so rough, we don't know how we are going to get through. Friends, Jesus tells us that prayer is the means by which we keep on center. Prayer is the means by which we keep from being overturned. But so often, if we're honest, we falter, don't we? We fail, we flip out. We are physically weak. We are tired. And so for me to come up here and tell you, if you just pray, you're going to make it through and everything's going to be all right. I'm here to tell you that you will flip out of your kayak. Friends, we need a savior who already made it downstream to the end, who never once flipped out. Jesus is that savior. And it happened there in the garden, there in that olive press, where Jesus was determined to obey to the very end so that the effect and power of his obedience would attend us in our moments when the river gets choppy. So one last time I'll ask you, what's your Gethsemane today? If you're not in Gethsemane, you will be. What's your Gethsemane? God's word tells us that when that Gethsemane comes, our Savior's active obedience becomes the source of power for us to obey God. And when we do topple over and we do fall, his perfect obedience all the way to the end protects you and me from the wrath of God and picks us up and puts our feet on solid footing again. His obedience is our redemption. His standing is our standing. Pray with me.
Lord, as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper and to sing again and to leave this place, Lord, I, I want to pray for the one who is either in Gethsemane or is getting ready to go into that garden. I want to pray that you would please, Holy Spirit, give them the eyes that they need to see their Savior for them, to see their Savior walking ahead of them, to see their Savior succeeding in the garden where Adam failed. I pray that you would give that brother or sister faith, give them faith to stand in the midst of their trial. Give them words to speak to you, O Lord, whether it's just a cry, help, or to walk by your side with faith and confidence. Be their savior in the middle of this. I thank you for the young lady who came and gave that word this morning about trials. I pray that whoever that was to, that they would receive their Savior again by looking into this perfect law of liberty that they would see that he succeeded for them. I want to pray for the one that maybe does not know this Savior, whether here or watching on the internet. I pray for them. I pray that, oh Lord, you would give them eyes to behold the Savior. Holy Spirit, go in and do that private work that only you can see and that only you can do through the work of Christ and give them new life, O Lord. Let them be found among the number of men and women and boys and girls who have been ransomed from every tribe and nation and tongue. And I pray for them that when their trial comes, as the water gets choppy for them, help them to know that There with them is the one who is obedient to the end. Please give us faith, Lord. We need faith. Things are tough right now. We need faith. We need eyes to behold our Savior. Grant these things, I pray. In his name, amen.